This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah This week, we speak to James Bennett, the opinion editor of The New York Times, about a big editorial project he's running called The Privacy Project. He was interviewed by the tech writer Jamie Bartlett, who you might also know as the presenter of the hit podcast, The Missing Crypto Queen. They spoke about privacy, surveillance and what governments know about us and explored questions such as whether Western societies are becoming surveillance states on par with China, why we are so willing to hand over our personal data and whether sacrificing your privacy is ever worth it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And just before we go to it, I wanted to also let you know about the other podcast series that Intelligence Squared has called How I Found My Voice. It's presented by the BBC journalist Samira Ahmed. And it's all about how prominent public figures came to find their voice from growing up their childhood experiences to the defining moments in their career. In season two, which has just launched and you can listen to now, we have guests from Michael Palin to Richard Branson, Naomi Klein, the whistleblower Chris Wiley, the British MP Jess Phillips and more. Check it out. Just search for How I Found My Voice on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. Hello, I'm Jamie Bartlett and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. James, how are you doing? Welcome. Thank you very much, Jamie. Very happy to be here. You just flew in yesterday? Just flew in yesterday. Exciting moment to be here. Feeling awake? More or less. <laughs> okay. And also you're here for the election in I'm the UK. I'm here for the election so, also. Yeah. So good time to be here. a lot going on. All right. Then let's just start with a very basic question that's not technology related because we talk about tech and privacy all the time. But take privacy more generally. Forget the tech. What is it? Yeah, it's a terrible word for this problem in a way or this 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 set of questions that we're grappling with. Privacy makes it feel in a way kind of small. You can think about it as autonomy or control or really power. I mean, I think it's a whole question of what's the space where we get to be by ourselves in control of the story we want to tell about ourselves, our relationships not subject to – influence or oversight or interference by our place of business, by the government, mm. by forces outside of our own control. And the word privacy doesn't really cover that, it does it? Because you think you just think don't push letters through my mailbox that I don't <laughs> like and don't collect data on me, which doesn't capture this idea of a space of the individual to sort of develop and grow and think and all of those things. Yeah. So is that what your initiative is 
is is also about just sort of expanding on what privacy means to people. Yeah, broadly, it's trying to think of space for for the it, it, trying to remind ourselves to some degree of the need for a space for individuals to grow to make mistakes without necessarily being punished for them for the rest of their lives. And to make us more conscious of the trade-offs that we're now making, I think a lot of us, you know, when we download, I mean, thinking about it in the technology space, download an app, carry our phone around in our pocket, aren't really conscious all the time of of the trade-offs that we are making. So well, let's get to the technology stuff because that is obviously yeah. – that sort of made privacy a slightly more pressing issue for many yeah. of us because I guess – Certainly not something I ever really thought about 10 years ago, or maybe I took for granted. And suddenly now we've got all this new technology that's forcing us to think about a privacy. So how do you see that our understanding of privacy has changed over the last decade or so? I think you're right that we haven't, and it's certainly supported by the polling. It was just not a subject people were worrying about until relatively recently, as we went online, it was – you know, the joke was, of course, that online nobody knows when you're a dog. Yeah, it was um, a New Yorker. It was a New Yorker cartoon that. Yeah, yeah. that sort of summarized the ethos of the web at that time yeah. that, in fact, you could have a very private experience as it were in public online. We weren't really conscious of the fact that, in fact, though we felt like we were anonymous, we were being tracked every step of the way uh, as the technology matured and, and, and grew more sophisticated. And I think there's been a growing awareness of that, partly as a consequence of a lot of good journalism being done on the subject in the last couple of years. But this is one of the reasons we chose to really focus the attention of Time's opinion on it in a very kind of deliberate way because it just feels like the pace of change is so rapid and our consciousness of of where it's taking us remains, I think we're still in the early stages of thinking a lot of these questions through and whether we want to make the trade-offs that we're making. Yeah, and we're gonna, I'm going to come to sort of what people really think about this because yeah. I'm one of those people that I talk about privacy all the time. I mean, and, but how often do I actually change my behavior online? You know, I'm one of those annoying people that lectures others yeah. about it and then kind of is happy to click on the link if I can you know, yeah. want to see the link quickly and so on. And that... So we'll get to that. But when Mark Zuckerberg said, was it seven or eight years ago that privacy's dead, a famous thing, um, do you think he's sort of right about that? I actually, I don't think he's right about that. I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily dead. I think, you know, it's so much of this is intellectual fashion too. Mm. Like at the time you could make that statement and and it could almost feel like a positive thing that we're living in a more transparent society, a more forthright and honest society in a sense if I don't have any secrets, isn't that kind of a positive thing that it could actually enhance human communication and build trust? You know, that you can argue, you can argue some of these questions either way. Now, in retrospect, that it's easy to put a far more sinister construction on that particular observation. I, it's hard for me to accept the idea that that privacy privacy is is dead that there's no space left anymore for for the individual to be free but are you saying that sort of theoretically like we we still value it as an idea it's definitely become more fashionable to say we care about this subject and the EU has passed this GDPR yeah, that yeah. everyone's sort of going on about all the time but no one quite knows yet how it's going to work but in practical terms, for in all intents and purposes, it's kind of, if not dead, it's it's sort of dying. So what 
What is your sort of state of the nation of online privacy at the moment? Look, it is look, it's it's an astonishing fact that we've come to accept a level of of surveillance of our lives that would have seemed, you know, the stuff of dystopian fiction 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We're we're paying giant corporations to install listening devices in our homes that are always on. It's like the greatest kind of Jedi mind trick that you could imagine. We're carrying surveillance devices in our pockets that are tracking us everywhere we go. This data is all supposedly anonymized, but it is not hard. To, to break that anonymity if you want to. So but that sounds like you're saying that privacy is kind of dead. It's dying. <laughs> Let's <laughs> put it that way. Let's put it that way. It's a great risk, you know, and, and I think we need to be super conscious of as individuals when we think we're acting in the private sphere and our information, our data is protected, our secrets are protected, that in, in fact they're, they're pretty vulnerable. So I guess the question is, what are the risks? I, I work in sort of politics and democratic theory mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And the um, question I always am asked and I have still in my head is, what, what are the actual risks to a sort of healthy politics of a dying privacy? Because it's not always obvious precisely what they are. Some people will say, well, no, it's great when you know more about each other. You can, you know, you can target people better with the things they care about. You can certainly make things more efficient you know, if, the, if I have less privacy, maybe it means I get better stuff, more free stuff. That's great for me. Maybe in the future, healthcare, if I give up more of my data, right. I'll get better healthcare. So there's benefits too from giving up some of your privacy. So what are the benefits and, and what are the risks of all of this? Well, you've named some of the benefits, and I think we've really been wrestling with this question because there's a lot of good stuff that is coming with these trade-offs that we're making and, and with the provision of more of these information, more such information. But in the political space, you don't have to look very f- far to find kind of scary examples of the consequences of the enhanced power of surveillance that – that states have at their command now. You look at what the, what's happening in Hong Kong right now, for example, mm. and you think about the protesters wearing masks to protect their anonymity. At the same time, they're carrying their phones in their pockets. And if I think if the government chose to, it would not be very hard for them to figure out who these individuals are and exactly where they are at any given moment. The use of facial recognition in all our societies now is something that I find extremely troubling. Mm. And uh, one of the early things we did, one of the fun things, fun, forgive the use in this context, (laughs) is kind of using the technology to tell the story of the technology. And our colleagues, some of my colleagues in opinion early on ran an experiment where they took over a, one of these freely accessible cameras that's on 24 hours is in a park near our office in Midtown, New York called Bryant Park. And anybody can take control of the camera to, serve, to, to watch the crowd. So our, our folks did that and they licensed for 60 bucks the Amazon facial recognition software that's also freely available to anybody who could pay for it. They uploaded publicly available photographs of people and began identifying people in the crowd using the Amazon software. And mm. we were able to just pick people out. I mean, that's a vast kind of form of of, of mm. power that not just states but individuals and companies now have. 
um, that we're just not conscious of as we're walking around. Hmm. But do you think stuff like what's going on in Hong Kong, do you think that that's, that's where we're really heading? I mean, that w- we are potentially going to create an infrastructure of surveillance that allows the governments and big companies to essentially abuse their powers so much that they can control every aspect of our lives? Or is, or is that just a sort of the bogeyman in the corner, the sort of the warning that we've got to be careful about? I, I don't think there's anything inevitable about it. In a relatively free society where individuals' rights are really protected and freedom of assembly is actually really honored and celebrated, it's obviously less of a danger that a, the government could put the technology to work in, in the oppressive ways that we really fear. But is it something we should be really worried about? Yeah, absolutely. Because here's what I sometimes think about it. We we can build infrastructure, build technology, build capabilities, and we but we don't really know who we're going to elect in ten years' right. time or twenty years' time. And I remember privacy activists saying this all to me ten years ago. You hmm. know the tin foil hat yeah, wearers. Yeah. And I was like, oh, whatever. They said you don't understand. We're building technology that was going to be misused in the future. And I was thinking, oh, shut up. I love my free internet services right. thing. But as the years have gone by, and as politics seems to become more turbulent. I think, yeah, maybe we will elect a government in 20 years' time who turns up, changes the rules, but still has the technology we've built. I mean, is that, is that something that you seriously worry about? Because sort of, we worry about privacy today and tomorrow, but should we be thinking about this for 20, 30, 50 years ahead? It's, yeah, yeah, I think we should be thinking about it at, at, at much further ahead than has been our practice so far. And obviously, the technology is racing far ahead of the regulatory apparatus and even far ahead of, I think, our, our ethical considerations of what's going on. I do think, and Jamie, you know this stuff cold. You've written about it. But it's not even so much the dangers that are presented by state control of this technology. There's also the tremendous power in a relatively small – that now resides in a relatively small number of corporations, mm. not necessarily in the like the jackboot of the government coming down on your head, but the ability of potentially of of companies to influence how we perceive reality, to influence our tastes to in ways that aren't necessarily day by day obvious to us to begin modifying our behavior just with the feedback loop that's available to them between the data they collect from us and 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 their ability to send signals, whether it's in the form of advertising or other sorts of signals to influence our behavior. What worries you more, governments or private companies? It depends where you live. You know, in the US right now, I'd say I'm more concerned. I mean, I've got some concerns about the government. I'll admit that too, but I'm a little more concerned about corporate power. And one of my colleagues, Farhad Manji, has made a very powerful argument that we're basically in, you know, that that the American reality is is a level of corporate surveillance and influence that's roughly analogous to the level of government surveillance and influence that you see in China. Mm, mm. Do you think we even know how bad the problem is? Because I, because hmm. you said I've written a few things yeah. about this, and every now and again. Someone like, usually like my mum or my dad or someone says, well, how much do they know about me then? Or how much data is out there about me? And where is it? And how can I get it? And I just, I have to be honest, I've got no idea. I don't even know how bad the problem actually is, how much information is out there about me. There's all this world of data brokers that are talked about. These are the aggregators of data and who, who are they and what country are they in and how much do they know and... 
I mean, do you do you have a sense of just how much data is out there about you or how much companies know about you? I, I mean, we don't really know. It depends on the company. The data brokers, you, you, you know, the reporting shows that they're, they're, they'll have thousands of points of information about a given person. My own suspicion is a lot of these companies don't even know what to do with a lot of the data that they're amassing now. Um, when you th- try to imagine what a, a data profile at Facebook looks like and the number of pieces of information they could have on every one of their users, it's simply vast. And I do think what we're, what's happening right now is it's almost – I think about it like the gold rush days in the western US. Where mm. the, people are aware that this information is tremendous. It's already got value today. It's only going to become more valuable there's very little regulatory oversight and they're just amassing as much information as they possibly can while putting in place their own kind of practices for anonymizing the data and so forth. But they're just sucking up as much of it as they possibly can and they're going to develop new ways to apply it as time goes and on. And that's the kind of we just – we don't know yet what we might be able to do with this data one day in future exactly. when our – Machines get more powerful, so let's get as much as we can. Yeah, the algorithms will get better and better. There'll be new uses for this that we haven't yet imagined. Who knows which data is valuable in future? Yeah. That kind of yeah. thinking. So right now, it's you you access as many of these data files as you possibly can. And and and, and it is amazing how many of the, the – whether it's the – the big platforms themselves that are able to develop what's called first-party data, just getting data directly from a user or the various data brokers that build profiles themselves, mm. which they can then sell on to other companies. There's the universe of of players out there is in the thousands. I'm interested in what you think some of the sort of consequences right now are already, sort of changes that we've seen in our, in our society or our politics from, from sort of privacy of each of us being slowly chipped away? Because there's obviously lots of different ways to look at this. As you said earlier, a lot of the consequences are wonderful, right? Like, I mean, the fact is... We've got to talk about the bad stuff too first. Yeah, no. Oh, you want to start with the bad (laughs) stuff? Let's start with the the bad stuff stuff because that is what I think has people exercised and maybe maybe they take the good stuff for granted. And I'm going to come to actually how much people really care about this next. But because I... I feel like there's there's lots of consequences to this that we don't always think about. We think, oh, privacy is because George Orwell's going to be, you know, 1984 is on the horizon. But there are other problems with a lack of privacy. You mentioned earlier sort of a lack of space for the individual to think freely. I think Hannah Arendt talks yes. about, about oh, this, yeah. you know, that the, the individual's right to develop their own mind and ability to be a good citizen that way is being lost by us having no privacy what are the, some of the other non-obvious risks that you see? Well, I, I, I think about control over your own life, right? Think about health insurance, for example, mm. or life insurance. Um, this is a more regulated space. So we're having fewer problems right now. At least it's more regulated in the states. But you can already begin to see insurers enforcing certain lifestyle choices on people, you know? It, it can, is it okay for your insurer to insist that you wear a Fitbit? Is, that a, is it okay for that insurer to let you know when they think you're not walking enough? At what point will they be able to monitor your diet and say, actually, no, you're, we see you're eating, you know, you really shouldn't be having dessert 
tonight and you're making a bad choice mm. and we're going to make a little bit of an adjustment in your rate as a consequence oh, yeah. of that. Little it's, micro payments yeah. being taken out for every dessert you yeah. have that goes yeah. to your insurance. Yeah. And that is – that's like – you can understand the logic, the market logic with no bad faith at all that would carry us in that direction. There are already signs of that. They can already insist that you wear the Fitbit, for example, and basically monitor your your – your, um, in some of the basic choices you're making. Um, so not having privacy over your own life uh, so will also control. allow big companies to control you better yeah. in all sorts of different ways that maybe yeah. we're not thinking about yet. Yeah. But how would you answer that question? What do you worry about today? <sighs> I'm the one doing the... Oh, huh? yeah. <laughs> well, I, actually, I do have one that <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about. Everyone talks at the moment about this sort of increasing aggression online and emotional, angry politics... And they often associate that with anonymity or people taking fake names mm -hmm. and hiding behind their online mask, be it pretending they're a dog on the internet. Mm -hmm. But I increasingly wonder whether a lack of privacy is part of the reason for that because I think the anger that we see online at the moment is, is partly driven by technology companies constantly feeding us material that they know is going to push our emotional buttons. And they can do that better the more they know about us. So the more they know about us, the more they give us stuff that gets us pumped up, gets us angry, and the consequences, we start screaming at each other because now we have all these emotional certainties that we've been fed for the last God knows how many years by the big platforms. And so almost counterintuitively, more privacy might make us less angry online rather than more. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, do you think it's possible? A lot of this stuff doesn't say great things about human nature, by the way. It's, well, it certainly says bad things about technology, but it also says some alarming things about who we are because you're absolutely right. I mean, look, one of the things the platforms learned was and, – and the YouTube algorithm I think is the best example of this is if you want to get people to stick around, you serve them progressively more extreme versions of the – of the content that they've expressed interest in and and we've all you know learned to our sorrow the way that's taken people down rabbit holes and if anything in radicalize them in a lot and that of is respect. based on them knowing so much about knowing you. so much about you yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and in that case not even knowing that much right just knowing what you've shown interest in and but and that's what that, that just one of the you know again both the political uses and the corporate uses of this kind of information concern me a lot because once you know even more about people, you know just how to reach them to motivate mm. them, right? What sort of signals they really respond to. And presumably that's going to get worse. Yeah. Presumably we're only at the start of this. I mean, in I can imagine a time in a, in a decade where the content you're served is based on your mood at that moment, not what you've right. historically posted or clicked on, but your facial expression, your, your motion, what you saw that day already. So it's a bit more... Um, how would you how would you describe that uh, contextual data, mm -hmm. uh, content, and that could be even more. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, amp us up. Here. Well, we're both getting <laughs> amped up here about the importance of privacy. But then the question I have is, does anyone else care? We yeah. care. We write about this. You obviously you now edit a, a huge yeah. project about this for the New York Times. But how much does the ordinary person actually care? They care more than they used to. It's, at least it's reflected in, in polling that they care more. But the privacy paradox that we're all familiar with is that – Just they, explain they, what that is. The, that people say that they care but then in our actual behavior, we make these trade-offs without 
concern for our privacy over and over and over again. We say we're worried about it, but – and people have run social experiments that demonstrate that the slightest inconvenience to you in pursuit of privacy will prompt you just to surrender privacy rather than put up with the inconvenience. Well, I suggest we don't really care then. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of our own behavior, we don't – we don't – it's maybe not that we care. It's that we trust you know, we kind of trust that, well... Do we, though? Because be okay. I, I see polls that show that the, the technology companies are not trusted with our data very much. It's funny. We had a really good piece. I thought it was a very good piece by Sundar Pichai, the CEO mm. of Alphabet, Google's parent company. It was a bracing argument. Well, it was part of the privacy. It was part of this project, yeah. Wow, okay. And Because we've really made an effort to get all sides of this debate kind of in the conversation. And he made a really strong argument that he, that obviously he was he was he was he was talking up Google's protections and what what and and how they think about privacy. But he said we are honored that people trust us every day with incredibly personal questions from what is this rash on my arm mm. to how do I get to this place I'm going that might be a friend's home or he didn't write this but you imagine what people put in to Google every day to find a methadone clinic you know mm. a, a counseling service and and in practice that's a demonstration you're right that these companies are not held in high regard in a lot of ways but that's a level of trust that's astonishing. Those are questions you wouldn't ask necessarily a close friend for fear of what it would expose to you about does yourself. That, does that reflect badly on us then that we're willing just to put all this out there because we care? I mean convenience now seems to have become the chief motivator of so much human behavior. Why have we become a people that just will – trade anything for something that's easy. <laughs> and by the way... Because life is hard, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Do you um, sometimes do it? I do it. I do it. I'm. Some of my colleagues, I will say, are now wearing tinfoil hats practically <laughs> around the office and have, have changed their behavior radically. No, radically. Yeah, radically mm -hmm. as a consequence of getting deeper and deeper into these questions and more and more conscious of how much data is being sucked up about us. I am not one of those people, though. Yeah. I hate to admit it, but I continue to use these services. I'm more conscious of it than I was. Certain helplessness it's, almost. A bit like yeah. recycling with the environment sometimes. Yes. I think, oh, I'm not going to eat meat. And then I think, oh, but if I don't eat meat in China, what they're difference? still going to yeah, – what difference is it going to make? Yeah. Is it that sort of collective action problem? I, I think there is a kind of apathy or acceptance that – about the inevitability of this. But none of this really is, this needs to be inevitable. It's all about choices that, we, that we've been making just without necessarily being aware of them. What about the, the tech companies? Do they care? Because they now have – I've noticed a change in the last yeah. five years. Now yeah. they're all about privacy and we care about your data. Maybe they're just seeing the, which way the wind is blowing and want to be ahead of it. Do you think the tech companies do genuinely care about privacy? I think they'd rather be seen as good guys than bad guys in general, like all of us. And I, I do think there's been an awakening driven by self-interest, of course. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. In the last, I would say it's more recent than five years, you know, post-Cambridge Analytica and and some of the – in general, it's been – I think they're experiencing whiplash in Silicon Valley because they've gone so quickly from – being lionized as the kind of midwives of a glorious new future to suddenly being seen as yeah. 
the really kind of uh, dark forces and, you know, enabling all these dark forces in society. So, but part of the problem we've got is GDPR is a good example of this. Some of the regulatory changes that are getting made are going to wind up favoring the big companies. Yes. Rather than rather yes. than reducing their ability to gather up. But all do this you think in the end, in the end, if push comes to shove and it really hurts their bottom line, this is what people always say about them. Yeah. That yeah, talk about privacy, say how important it is and use all the nice language of the civil liberties groups. But actually if it's gonna really hurt your bottom line, you're not actually gonna change much, are you? Yeah. No, I think that's right. Unless it's gonna hurt their bottom line not to be really responsible stewards of data. Um, I do think that that's that it changing the incentives there is probably one of the important things that needs to happen from a public policy standpoint, mm. so that it, it the you know to bring in alignment the totally reasonable kind of self interest as businesses with the need to protect people's privacy. Right. Well, let's uh, stop now for a very quick break, and we'll be back in a moment. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Right. Let's let's talk about some of the good things, I suppose, or at least admit there are trade-offs. Yep. I mean, if we're going to try to increase the levels of privacy that people have, there are going to be some costs to that. And I think sometimes in these discussions, we forget, we don't admit that, that there are going to be other problems. So... 
if there are going to be trade-offs in a world where everyone has far more privacy and everyone's cared, careful about their data and it's all protected, what are the costs to individuals and to society? Into society. I mean, consider the example of video doorbells, right? And the surveillance capability that we have from this new technology. They're not that it's, big here yet. But I know oh, really? No. I, am I right? Am I right looking at the produce? I don't see much of these in the UK yet, but in the US they've been spreading quite quickly. They've right? been spreading so you might very need to, quickly. You might need to explain to listeners and exactly what they it's, are. It's quite fascinating. So it sounds it's one of these things like putting an Alexa in your home or something like that that just seems kind of super cool when you first hear about it. Mm. It's it's the 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 camera technology has has gotten cheap enough that it's and and good enough that it's relatively exp- inexpensive now to install a doorbell in your home that will observe whoever comes to your door. And, of course, the camera is always on, so it's constantly filming what's happening in front of your street. And it turns out that some of the companies behind this have begun using the live streams to begin creating profiles of people, essentially profiling um, to determine if they're suspicious or not by correlating it with various... Forms of data that's otherwise available. And it's become another way for us to kind of spy on ourselves. Now, you'll see in the States, there in certain high crime neighborhoods, for example, people are very eager to have this technology. It's a way to make their communities safer. And who who am I to say that that's a, a, a bad choice for somebody to make if they think it's going to help them protect themselves and, and their family? On the other hand, and it's been used in um, in in various uh, enforcement actions already. In fact, the Jesse Smollett case in Chicago, if you followed that. Yes, he's the actor, isn't the he? The actor, and they, the police determined that his story of having been attacked in a racially motivated assault was false. They tracked down the the two assailants, and one of the ways they were able to do that was by getting the doorbell video of houses on the street where he was attacked and they were able to actually track the movements of these two people by looking at them doorbell by doorbell. Oh, even just saying that, even just describing that, it sounds like something that even 10 years ago would have been tracked through doorbell cameras. It sounds mad. It's, it, it sounds, it's, I mean, you know, look, look, we're in a city that has the highest ratio of of CCTV, of CCTV cameras, to yeah. human beings and in I'll any city what, in the world. If I'm ever, if there's a, some crime, if I'm wrongly suspected of a crime right. or if I'm attacked, I want there to be a CCTV camera around. Right. I do. And I love to talk about privacy in the abstract sense. But when it comes to a cost to me, I'll be saying, why haven't you got a CCTV camera on this so we can prosecute this person? Exactly. There's a lot of good stuff that's come with this technology. So if we we imagine a world where we have greater privacy, and we'll talk maybe in a second about the things we could do, but let's say the tech companies have less data about us, the government has less data about us, it's harder for them to profile us, to monitor us. Let's think about some of the problems that's going to cause. I'm assuming it's going to make – is it going to make crime harder to prosecute? Is it going to make it harder to find people sharing terrorist propaganda on the internet? Enhanced privacy, yeah. yes. I mean encryption is a, a thing – You know, I, I think how to solve that one as a society is really tough. Facebook is now embracing encryption you know, and end-to-end encryption. And should governments be allowed to crack that or should they not? 
do we want a world where terrorists are able to freely communicate without fear of of anybody breaking effectively their code? But do we just have to accept that that is the cost of living in a society where there's greater privacy? It's something I, I will say I'm really struggling with myself because, again, as you said earlier, in the moment, as a principle, I would totally accept that. Mm. Um, that cost is necessary. It is not hard to imagine edge cases where that would be a horror, where the cost to in human life would just be too vast. And and then you think about and the and the Times newsroom has done some amazing reporting on this the the way, um, for example, sexual predators, child abusers can be protected by this technology, be able to share photography, photographs without anybody being able to 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 recognize that that's happening and catch them. Um, that's, that's a pretty mm. scary society to imagine living in as well. See, that's the thing. I, I, I guess I always struggle just even working out how I balance these things against each other. Because sometimes they're incomparable and it, you, you have to think, well, have more privacy, which is so important for the development of you know, individual freedom and thought and expression. And it's going to be vital to make sure we're not constantly controlled by big companies and by governments. And who knows in 20 years time what they'll do with all this. But on the other hand, then simultaneously, that could mean well, more crime or you know, mm -hmm. tougher to prosecute certain people or even at a personal level. I assume that if Google doesn't have all the data on us, the search results we get won't be as good. It might harm my own frustrating for me and might harm the economy in some. I mean, if Google search didn't work so well, the economy would probably suffer in some senses. How on earth do you begin to work out how you balance these different things off against each other? It's a, it, 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 in the context in which we're having this conversation is one where uh, unfortunately, we can't trust any of these institutions anymore, right? Like in the mm -hmm. ideal scenario, you'd be operating under a government that you felt was transparent and accountable to the people and would as a result be able to serve as a kind of watchdog over the companies and as a trusted kind of guarantor of um, the idea that the data would not be used for nefarious or oppressive purposes. Right now, we have so little – I mean, this is true in the U.S. I think it's true here as well. In in mature democracies, mature liberal democracies, there's so little trust mm. in our governments that we can't right now embrace the idea of them playing that role responsibly. And I think that's one of the reasons we feel so like at sea as we try to imagine solutions for this. Now, when you think about the old 1990s cypherpunks, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the technologists that were quite scared about governments, when, yeah. when most of Silicon Valley, and well, I suppose it wasn't really even Silicon Valley then so much, but the sort of West Coast technologists were yeah. talking about the wonders of the connected networked age, they were saying, yeah, but we're ushering in a golden age of surveillance. And they, would, they actually used to say, privacy is important to us. And these are quite hard-line sort of anarchistic libertarians. Mm -hmm. Privacy is important to us, but you cannot trust governments to give you privacy. You can only trust maths. That's why you need powerful encryption that's uncrackable. And it was all driven, I think, by partly a sense that historically governments could never be relied upon to guarantee yeah. the privacy that you, that you had a right to. So you have to rely on software that's uncrackable. 
And I feel like, in a weird way, that strange niche debate of the 90s is one we're all sort of having now because none. it used to be those guys that tr- didn't trust governments. Now it's sort of all of us. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I would rather I, – I, I, ideally, I'd rather live in a world where the legal software – Rather than the yeah. the software software was was guaranteeing the rights of the people that the constitutional protections were such and this has worked pretty well in the U.S. for a long time. It's being tested again right mm. now as we speak as the impeachment of a United States president is mm. is 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 unfolding. I, I I that's traditionally been the guarantor, guarantor of 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 individual freedom. The notion that power resides with the people and the government is accountable to them. I'm and maybe it's just because I'm a fuddy duddy and it's an old it's an old fashioned idea that I've grown up with and appeals to me. That's a world that feels righter to me than one in which we're trusting technology we don't really understand mm. to be the final guarantor of our freedom. And I think. The the so much of that libertarian ethos. I don't know. Don't you think it still pervades a lot of the thinking of the yeah. of the of the technology? I do, yeah. I do, and I and I sort of see the more that we don't trust governments to guarantee our privacy, because you can imagine a world in which you had. Yes, everyone can have encryption, but governments can crack that encryption so they can catch the bad guys, but they'll only do that under the strictest legal conditions. So you trust – you don't trust the technology encryptions foolproof, but you trust that, like you say, the, the legal software is, is foolproof because it really works. And, but if you don't trust that, then all you've got is the technology. Yeah. And it does feel like – I'm with I'm with you. I, I want it to be governments that somehow are in charge of this because I want some democratic means. I'm often asked, do, do, you know, do you want a world in which governments can access everything, can see everything you do? And I say, yes, I do, under very, very strict conditions. But maybe the problem's been that for the last several years, let's be honest, governments haven't been doing it. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. have been abusing their powers. So it's yeah. no wonder that people are turning to the tech yeah. more. yeah. And it, I, I sort of talked about an, uh, the Snowden effect. A lot of the modern, you know, a lot of the new wave of default encryption was after Edward Snowden because people were like, God, yeah, we, we thought that these governments have been lying to us. They can collect all this data about us. So I'm not going to rely on the Constitution anymore. I'm going to rely on this brand new app that's default encrypted that no one can break. And I get that. I do get that. Okay, well, let's go to some other tech stories, though. Like some of the things that bother you right now, the stories that you're seeing, that you're thinking. Well, this is you know a whole area that we haven't really discussed. Where again, there's there's good stuff as well as deeply disturbing is is um, genetic testing, right? Mm. Um, now, again, in the U.S. at least, there are many more protections of the data there because it is health related, but we've seen. People are uploading their genomes to these companies that then think about that level of information that they've got. And in the U.S. at the moment for law enforcement, if you – let's say I I leave – I've got – I'm drinking a cup of tea here. If I leave the cup behind, it would be totally appropriate for the police to collect this and find evidence of my DNA and crack my own and develop a genetic profile of me. In the same way, it's now legal for the police to go through your garbage if you put it out on the street because they've analogized those two things and said it's basically the same. Hmm. It's It's a reasonable search and seizure. Now, 
This what? Is... What? Turn, take creating a DNA profile of you from your yeah. fingerprints on that mug would be a reasonable. Uh, yeah, the same as collecting my fingerprints from my from garbage. Yeah, this is going to be get tested in the courts. It's going to make its way to the Supreme Court, and that's something I find really disturbing because it's a level of information that is similarly like mm-hmm. if they're able to take your phone from you and take all the information off your phone, is that a reasonable search and seizure? We haven't. We haven't. Um, resolve those questions right now in the states, and I don't know where the state of that oh. debate is here. Oh God! I but mean, we've I seen... don't think we have either. To be honest, yeah. is that where we are? We are we thinking too much about the modern technology? The sort of oh, Facebook knows everything I've clicked on, and not enough about these kinds of genetic. That's what I biological. Come to think. Yeah, I think we in the media think a lot, particularly about Facebook and the rest, because it's having a huge impact on our own business, and it's all in front of us, and we're experiencing it. But I've come to be a little more freaked out about technologies in other areas, including including um, facial recognition technologies. But this one, genetic testing and where that's taking us, not just in the privacy space, but the whole idea of being able to influence our basically, you know, choose your offspring and mm-hmm. write their write edit their gene sequence to produce the offspring that you want. It's not very hard to imagine that. Um, possibility existing in the real world. Where do you think that sort of that sort of capability in the hands of either private companies or governments? What sort of misuses can you imagine? I mean lay, lay that up against a world where there's already pervasive income inequality and terrible inequality of wealth and inequality of outcomes based on those inequalities and imagine a world in which wealthy people will be able to give their children, not just advantages of private schools and tutors and all the rest of it, but actual what could actually be described as genetic advantages. It's a pretty chilling mm. thing to to imagine. And it's uh, – unless we write laws to prevent it, it's kind of unfolding before our eyes. Yeah, they already are because they, they – wealthy people just drink loads of healthy smoothies and vitamins <laughs> already, don't they? So they've already got 30 years on poorer people. Yeah, except it's... you know all the science will turn out to be wrong in five years and they well, should yeah. been eating French fries the whole time. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But do you – I mean – I don't know. I mean it's easy to – it's 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 a game one can play and to conjure all these kind of dystopian futures. But maybe As, science fiction is – I mean maybe science – looking at science fiction scenarios and movies, I've been thinking about this quite a lot lately, is more helpful in terms of just imagining the scenarios, yeah. the possibilities because we seem to be quite bad. We, like if I'd have tried to explain to you the Cambridge Analytica story 20 years ago, you'd have thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. You never would have believed it. Yeah, one of the things we've been doing as part of this project is a series of we're calling them op-eds from the future, essays from the future that are written from the point of view of 2031 or 2051 looking backwards to just try to illuminate what's happening today by imagining what the consequences might be down the road. And it's a, an utterly speculative and irresponsible <laughs> kind of exercise that's only possible in the world of opinion journalism. Right, right. But is really interesting and, and it, it's helped us, I think, articulate some of the potential harms and benefits more clearly. I mean, who knows what kind of world we're going to be living in. But I think with all of these technologies, it's important to try to project, as we haven't really been doing, I don't think, um, with the exception of some of the futurists in Silicon Valley, 
as a society we haven't really been doing up till now. Mm. Well, let's think about then what should be done at this point. Imagining those 20 years from now scenarios. Here's one question for you, because we're all wondering what do we do? Is it governments to sort it out, individual mm-hmm. behaviour? But here's one thing that worries me. The, the US is obviously the most important country, really, in terms of figuring these questions out. But I'm increasingly thinking the US government will be too worried about falling behind a country like China yeah. to and be constantly told, but if you don't let us have all this data, we can't build the AI of the future. China's going to storm ahead of us. AI is really about data, so we need as much data as we can just to keep up with a country of 1.3 billion people and lots of investment into AI, that the US government's never really going to take privacy that seriously because it's going to be too harmful for the country in the coming years. Yeah. I, that is, in fact, what they say now. And that's the answer you get from the companies in, in, in Silicon Valley, the big platforms, when when the issue of antitrust comes up and whether the company should be broken up. They say, what do you mean we don't have anybody to compete with? We're competing with the Chinese. And mm. do you really want to live in a world where those are the dominant platforms and th- that is the only real AI superpower? And I don't. Yeah. I definitely don't. Yeah. But does that mean – is that going to mean we we are never going to regulate this because we've got this other competitor now? I think we're going to have to. We had a piece, an essay by the chief lawyer for the National Security Agency, which is the yeah. – the, Our GCHQ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, but like 10 times bigger. <laughs> but what he said, it was quite chilling. He basically said these companies have superior technology to ours now. Wouldn't and he just say that anyway they, though? They – you mean it's in his interest yeah. to say that? Oh, we're helpless. We don't. This no, is- he didn't say they're helpless. He was really trying to point. I think he was really trying to influence this debate by saying we have to recognize that our ability to that the companies simply have they're developing the technology faster than the government can keep up with them. And I think it's completely true. You know, I don't. I don't. I don't doubt it. They have access to their the, the best data scientists now in the world. They have access to tremendous amounts of data, and as a result, they're they're you know the the breakthrough that Google recently had actually on quantum computing is another example of this. Mm. These companies are really operating at the forefront in ways that are really exciting. Actually, mm. quantum computing being a good example, uh, and the government is just scrambling to keep up. Speaking of quantum computing, does that mean that if if we if we get to proper quantum computing, does that mean all of our current encryption yes. is basically meaningless? Yes. That's and, a bit of a yes. and issue, people are, isn't it? it is. Again, this is a piece we've been trying to get. But my understanding is there are people already who are accumulating encrypted data with the idea that they're going to be able to crack it down the road once oh, they great. have the – Yeah. Yeah. So something to think about when you feel like you're safe because you're using encryption. You're safe today, but five years from now – or 10 years from now, or however long it's going to take in a world of quantum computing, that encryption is going to be pretty easy to defeat, I'm told. Existing encryption, in- but would we, we build yeah. better encryption to – Yes. Is this how it's going to work? So we've got to think, well, we need to re-encrypt all our old data with the new encryption that is quantum computing proof. Yes, but that data is already residing someplace else where yeah. you're not going to be able to touch it. So you're not going to be able to re-encrypt it. It's just something to think about whether how private even your kind of most private communications today actually are. 
So what should okay? So we're, we're <laughs> <laughs> be an honest man. I think I'm afraid is like, and this well, is one we, of the this is one of the horrible things that you hear actually. Again, that one has to wrestle with, which is like, well, if you don't have anything to hide, you know, yeah. it's okay. And I get that, but in a sense, like, do you really? It just goes back to the question you started with. Like, don't we want to live in a world where? It actually is okay for you to have some stuff to hide and, and mm. some secrets. And and having things to hide and having secrets is an important part of developing as a person. Yes. Like yeah. a, a di- writing a diary was important to me when I was 13. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, yeah, I don't know whether I'd write, I certainly wouldn't be writing diaries online now. But it was important to me when I was younger doing that, thinking about the things of the day. And I never would have done it if I'd have thought everyone would have looked at it somehow right. or might have looked at it. Right. But, and which, so, by the way, God help us if... There's ever a point in which we start develop stop developing as people, right? Whether you're 13 or yeah. you know 55, you yeah. want to be able to continue growing, and and that involves being willing to take some chances that you wouldn't necessarily want to expose to your your colleagues at work, let alone the entire you know gaping public on the internet. I agree with that so much because I feel like I would hate to be 14 or 15 years old now, yeah, going online and thinking oh, I want to sort of put an opinion out there, I want to say something, but terrified of the mob descending yeah. on me or just being bombarded constantly with what I should think and I, what I should say. And oh, that's, I mean, that's really difficult to develop because yeah. you're just terrified of putting your ideas out there because you might find out that two weeks later it's gone viral and you're in trouble with everyone. And Yeah. Or conversely, putting it out there and then discovering five years later, it's a problem with getting a job. You know, yeah. or ten years yeah. later, it comes back around, and people are horrified that you expressed this particular opinion. Which, and we face this. I don't know if you face this. I've faced this hiring colleagues who, you know, when they're in college and they had twelve followers on Twitter, and they were all yeah. their best friends, and they spoke in a particular code with each other, and all that stuff is surfaced and used against them today. I hope over time we just recapture a little sense of forgiveness for that and yeah. recognition that because we're all this doing is just it life so we've all done it you know I'm so, I, do you, I mean, you must think sometimes thank god that no one took a picture of me god. when i was 19 doing x y and z all the time yeah there was an onion article about this actually about the the the, the, the u.s election in 2040 onions that satirical yeah. thing of course about how the democrats and the republicans were basically go, scouring the world for people that had lived in sheds who hadn't put embarrassing photos on Facebook to be their next candidates because everyone else had done something too embarrassing. Yeah. Mm. I, although I have to say I feel like the rising generation is more sophisticated about this than anybody <laughs> yeah. else. But it's, it also makes you a little sad to go back to what you – because they have to be inhibited about these kind yeah. of communications. They have to – there's like a level of consciousness of – well, I shouldn't join this social network or if I'm on it, I should be lurking rather than participating because God knows how down the road it may be, it may be used against. So what do we do? Because privacy is such a wide subject and it covers everything from you know, lurking on forums and not developing as a human because you're worried that what you say is going to be read by everyone to genetic testing in 20 years' mm-hmm. time. And it can I sometimes wonder whether the apathy people have about it is they just think it's just too much I can't what am I supposed to do about any of this it's too much so what's what's your advice I mean what do we do both as individuals and maybe as sort of you know advising governments or 
pushing governments? As individuals, there's a lot we can do, and we've been actually accumulating tips and creating kind of a guide to how to protect your privacy online if you care enough to to do it, and from choosing protective browsers to turning off the location beacons in your phone. Simple things, more, right. Simple things. Simple things. There's a lot you can do to take control of this at a, at a basic level. And I think similarly from a public, public policy standpoint, we're going to need – Sorry, just before you go to yeah. the public policy thing, is it – do you think it's fair to say that's a duty on citizens to do this kind of thing or is it just a question of personal choice? I'd say it's more a question of personal choice. Um, do you feel it's a duty? I sort of think that privacy is so important for the long-term health of society and of democracies that I wonder whether it is a duty, a bit like voting. Hmm. You know, I don't vote because I think I'm going to be voting tomorrow. The person I vote for is not going to win in the seat that I'm hmm. living in at all. But I don't vote because I think they're going to win. I vote because I think it's a duty to maintain a sort of healthy democracy. And I increasingly wonder whether doing little things like switching off your tracking beacons and you know, using privacy-enhanced web browsers and doing those little things is also a duty because without me not doing those things also in some way weakens the privacy of everybody else because it's helping companies. Pro when they collect my data, yeah. it enables them to better profile you yeah. because they work out the relationship between us. Yeah. See what I mean? Yeah. And that, yes, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Um I still think that's a level of a sort of exhortation of people to be conscious of this kind of thing. I'm reluctant to impose it. As, uh, but I agree. I mean, like, you know, do you, when you go onto a social platform, do you upload all the contacts? You know, it invites you to upload your contacts. If you do that, you're giving all that data. Everybody else's, not just the data you control, uh, not just data about yourself, but you're giving away phone numbers, birthdays, all that other stuff that may be in your, in your um, Rolodex mm. about your friends, family, and others. And that's taking kind of – that's making choices for other people that we shouldn't be making. So maybe that's the line. You know, your duty is also as a citizen to not, I suppose, do things that – Yeah, you can make choices for yourself, others. but yeah. you really want to make choices for other people – we have kids and I do not put pictures of our kids on mm. um, any social platform and partly because I just feel like I, I shouldn't I shouldn't oh, be yeah. doing that. I do put pictures of our dogs. <laughs> That's um, allowed. But maybe, I don't know, in the future the, that might look like an irresponsible yeah, choice too. Yeah, because on the internet no one knows you're a dog. <laughs> right. but, but I think you know, sort of yeah. your children and what they might yeah. – you know, do they want to have pictures of them up? When should they're I be 18, making that choice for them? No, I shouldn't. I don't think I should be. Final thing then is public policy, so governments, yeah. laws. You know, what, what, what should we be doing as a society? We're going to be working out and proposing our own list of things, but in, in, in superficially, I think, again, it's going to take different solutions in different places. We have to reconcile the what are the protections, for example, when it comes to genetic material. You know, what is it okay for the government to do with that kind of information? Uh, similarly, with with um, with data protection, you know, should should a company first of all, is it okay for the companies to be vacuuming up data and storing it forever as they are now? I think the answer to both those questions is no. And is it okay for them to sell it on, or only to use it for their own purposes with your consent? 
And I could imagine a world in which the government could write regulations that limited the ability of companies to hold data, limited their ability to trade it, and insisted on a much higher threshold for consent. You know what consent mm. is like now. Mm. It's, a, it's a meaningless process yeah. where nobody has time to read through or understand what it is that they're signing away. Those sorts of protections seem to me to be totally conceivable and I think they would make a difference. Final thing, are you optimistic, pessimistic about all this? I am I, – I don't – I'm, I'm optimistic but only because I don't think there's any point in being pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> we need a new word for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean I just think we have to figure this out, right? Yeah. And there is so much good stuff that comes along with it that I, I can't deny that um, – that uh, look, the technology is also tremendously empowering to people, and and potentially is a great source of enhanced control for the individual. But I, I what I it throws me back again and again on the the question of how do we make these democracy? I mean, you've written the book on this subject, but how mm-hmm. do we make democracy vital in this day and age? Because it's the only mechanism we've got for for ultimately for to protect our rights. James Bennett, thank you very much. You're the uh, editor of The Privacy Project, New York Times. You can check that out on Twitter and obviously on the New York Times homepage. Good luck with that. Thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody, uh, for listening to this Intelligence Squared podcast. Thank you, Jamie.